Hey, Brian. Hey, Elliot. What's the talk of the table? This week, we are sitting down with Rick Perry, the production designer, creative producer, and co-EP of Dimension 20. Rick leads the team responsible for the amazing and outrageous sets and battle maps that have come to define seasons like Crown of Candy, Mentopolis, and most recently, Burroughs End. When I think of what it is that makes Dimension 20 so special, one of the very first names that comes to mind is Rick Perry. Rick, welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. We're, we're very excited to talk to you. We've been big fans of your work for a while now, so it's it's a real treat and dream and honor to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So to get us started off, one of our goals for this conversation is to talk about what makes successful collaboration. Uh, we think that you and Dimension 20 do an amazing job of collaborating, making great things together. And one of the reasons we're interested in talking about this is because as we've grown our actual play show, My First Dungeon, we have been slowly bringing in more collaborators, including outside music from our, our resident musician, Behold, who we, like I internally, have been calling him our Rick Perry. And cool, it, it, which is very fun. Uh, he, he certainly likes it. He's very tickled by it. And what I'm interested in learning from this conversation is how you can make a successful creative collaboration, especially when you're working kind of across mediums. Um, so I guess my first question to you is, what do you think it is that has made your collaboration and your work with Dimension 20 so successful up till now? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if there's any one answer to that question. Uh, I do think collaboration is a, a cornerstone of it. And it's an aspect of creative work that is uh, incredibly enjoyable and fruitful for myself. I really work best when it's like three or more in a group, you know, uh, to, to have many voices and vectors coming together. I don't know. I feel like Dimension 20 is kind of a, we got a lot of room to sort of like come up with the show and, and create this thing and sort of go as hard as we wanted to. And Dimension 20 is kind of like this little, it can be at its best moments, this little like reactor box of all these very talented people with high rapport, just jamming and undoing it ex for extended periods of time over months and months. And then, and then it just reaches a crescendo during the shoot and get that carries on into post. It's this big, long, uh, jam band kind of uh, thing or something. You know, we we don't know what we're doing, but we're having a lot of fun and making each other laugh and and trying to impress each other and kind of all the best things that come from a group collaborative environment. I do really love that idea of trying to impress each other because I do think that we, with this podcast and with My First Dungeon and with like other creative endeavors, it is always that fun thing of like, you know, it's for an audience eventually, but your first audience is the person you're showing it to first, the person that you're most excited to show it to. Yeah, that's and that's the that kind of the in way the most important audience because it's the it's the audience that maybe you even respect the most kind of that you have the most that, you know, like these people that I'm working with who are in different disciplines are the best at what they do and pushes you to to try to be the best as well at what you're doing and uh to get that twinkle in their eye or that laugh you know to get that mutual respect kind of was uh it's definitely motivating yeah i'd love to kind of so that's the first audience is sort of these earlier collaborators and and often that's the the gm of the season who you're working with in in the development phase and i think like we were kind of thinking about this ahead like first audience gm and collaborators 
Second audience is the players at the table, maybe. And then the third audience is the viewing audience at home. And I'm curious how you're thinking about those different audiences when you're when you're going into a season. It, that is so true. It's sort of strange. Uh, f- from my perspective, I, I feel like sometimes I have the best seat in the house because I get to be there at the very kind of beginnings and and be part of these talks and get to kind of build this world and this arc out and stuff and, and see the the DMs and producers kind of really in these volcanic moments, kind of creating these things with big strokes. And then to take that and run with it and and uh, and it sort of exists for, for me, it sort of exists and then we go build the sets. It exists primarily in that in that pre that development, pre-production and production. And then post, I'm pretty much hands off. So when it gets to the table, the players they take it and they kind of do their own version of it, their own take of it. And then and then by the time it gets out into the world, it sort of exists in yet a third uh, way, which is really kind of a couple of stages removed from my most involved time. So it's sort of a strange perspective. But yeah, I didn't really answer your question, though. What, what, what was your question exactly? Well, sort of just I, I think it did. I think it's like, how are you considering these these three different audiences? And I guess maybe to make that more of a, a granular question, like, are there specific pieces of like craft and detail that you are putting in because you're like, oh, this will help the DM feel engaged in the world in a moment, or this will give this player something to like, you know, latch onto as there are there are there like levels of detail that you're thinking about for these different audiences, maybe in a more practical sense? Yeah, I think so. And also just as part of the creation process, you know, at the beginning, I'm thinking about I'm pulling reference and doing research and trying to I'm trying to zero in on what it is that the DM has brought to us. What is this world, you know, and maybe they haven't made all the decisions about what color the sky is or what kind of food people eat or whatever. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to explore that and gather this. And so that, so I'm, I'm sort of trying to, to build it out by showing these things and, and poking at the DM and sort of trying to, so in that way, it's like an exploratory, like it's a lot of like yeses or nos or maybes or or I'll get back to you on that. But that's what that part of it's like. And then once we feel like, okay, we all know what this world is, we're all on the same page and the characters have been created and the cast is locked in and stuff, then it's about communicating that to the players, mm. doing it in a way that communicates as much as possible, like vibe and all these different things, genre without giving anything away. Mm. You know, I think about the DM screen from season to season. It's like a themed element that we that wraps around our Dungeon Master's uh, screen, big kind of miniature tableau usually. And I think about it like the poster for the movie for the whole season, right? Because it's it's in all, every shot of the... It's in, unless it's a close-up or a piece of illustration, that DM screen is in every single shot in the bottom 25% of the screen. So it serves as this kind of themed element. It ties the space together, but it also is this signifier of like what the season is, what the episode is, and even those moments. And so I try to gather elements and create a visual kind of thing going on that feels like it's a poster for the whole season. But but it, and maybe it has some specifics about battles that are going to come up or places that we're going to go to, but it's done in such a way that it doesn't immediately signal like, you know, oh no, we're fighting a dragon or whatever it is, you know. I've got a ton of questions off of that, but but I the the quick fun one is you say that you are trying to kind of create this poster with the GM screen. In your opinion, what GM screen do you think was the most successful in that endeavor? 
Hmm, that's a great question. I'm still a really huge fan of the uh, Crown of Candy uh, GM screen. It just, it, yeah. it, we really kind of went <laughs> way off the deep end there. And it's very sculptural and just sort of has a, uh, a bonkers level of tiny details that maybe not all necessary, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had this objective of representing the five food groups, the five kingdoms of Calorum and down to like one 2000th scale teeny tiny ships that are smaller than like your pinky fingernail. And so that was really fun. And I think there's actually a GM screen for a season that hasn't really been announced yet that I think might, might top that in certain ways uh, in its posterness. So, so look out for that. Looking forward to it. I do love talking about pre-production and kind of like what that looks like, because I think it's so cool. The, the way that you kind of interact as kind of a, backseat GM sidekick to the GM and really help in building the world in the early stages. And I'm curious, is is there a good example that you have of like a question you had, a a poke that you gave to a game master on a season that you think led to like the biggest developments for the world at large? The GM of any given season is still the sort of primary creative of it. Mm. So, you know, I think I'm really, uh, my my role really is to, to try to play try drums or whatever it is to their main you know melody i'm sort of trying to like build it out in a way but i don't know i mean a bunch of stuff i get to kind of be the first player in a way too or the first like you know it's like the gm is is coming up with this world and i'm imagining like you know the minutiae of it because for instance like in the crown of candy uh the people are made of food and as someone who has to like build the little buildings and stuff for these battle maps you know, I start thinking like, well, what, what is this? This is clearly like a medieval, like wooden hut, but like, what is it made out of? What, what's the wood? Cause it's not wood. Is this chocolate wood? And then, you know, so that's just a question for Brennan. And then, and then like, what about if the people are food and they eat food, can they eat each other? What happens if they eat, you know, is that what, you know, like kind of, and it sort of forced a bit of like development on that, you know, and, and, and like essentially it's like i bumped up against a, a, a guardrail or a boundary you know where Brennan's like no this is how this works because xyz one that i can think of that i'm not sure i would love to ask Brennan about this but i think it was pretty influential is uh we did this season um uh, mice and murder um mm. which is anthropomorphic wind in the willows type animals stuck in a mansion where a murder has happened and so it's like a clue but with little cute animal people in, in at the turn of the century and um you know we got the kind of the first download of it and then i spent a lot of time sort of trying to understand when the willows and like all these references that we in genre and stuff that we were, were, were working with and um you know, I'm not particularly passionate about Wind in the Willows. Uh, it's not my necessarily, and not that I have against it, but it's just not my most exciting corner of narrative or whatever. And um, in researching, it was like, oh, you know, it, it, it became interesting to me just to learn that the purpose of that type of story were at the turn of the century in, in Europe and especially England, where they were romanticizing this like bucolic pastoral past that didn't really exist exactly and doing these like watercolor paint is because of the industrial revolution and the encroachment of all these giant like stinky machines with smoke and soot and it, so it was like a reaction to that it was like that's really interesting you know so i i brought that back 
and I was just discussing, you know, when I was sort of showing reference and sort of my take on that season, I was talking to talking about that. Uh, and I think Brennan like really like latched onto that and it became a theme of the of the season, you know. And I'm curious in that when you're in this development process, at what point are you getting your hands into creation? Are you doing test builds in development and showing them to the GM? Is it all conversation at that point? Yeah. Do you get to get into the craft like in those early stages? Yeah, sometimes it, it, you know, being an anthology show uh, really varies wildly season to season, um, what the process is like. Certainly, sometimes an early build is very appropriate to explore a concept or, or like, oh, we know we're going to have a lot of um, mushroom people in this season or whatever. So let's, let's build some and see how that looks or try this effect. We, when we did a season set in um, Tailspire, which is this awesome, um, like a 3D kind of virtual dungeon software where you can you can create your own battle maps and run games, you know, with your friends online. That was a new software for us to use for the show. And initially, the idea was like, oh, you know, we have this like computer space. We should build maps as big as possible, and I want to build the mountains in the distance, and I want to do all these sort of things. And then, you know, we dive into the software and it's like, actually, that's not what this software is designed to do. And you can only build so far before it, it starts to like kind of break mm -hmm. because it's it's meant to be sort of a, a microscopic sort of view into one little set piece, one little world, you know. So anyway, just things like that where it's like, OK, let's go and and figure out, you know, whatever it is that we need to figure out for that season. When we did uh, we did Starstruck, which is based off of these graphic novels that Brennan's mom wrote, you know, that was like. A week and a half of like i have my copy here somewhere but it's like you know of just pouring through there taking pictures of the pages and cataloging like all the types of technology and sort of doing a, a deep dive on this existing world to to understand it you know and then and then reporting back and being like well i noticed there's a lot of this this and this and the spaceship should be a hot dog because look at all these goofy <laughs> like 50s like diner kind of vibes that they have you know I got to think you get some weird emails or like your emails must be fun. Like what, what, or, or the questions you got to ask, like, wait, should the ship be a hot dog or a hamburger? Is the wood chocolate wood or is it celery wood? It's, it's good, good, good problems to have. Yeah. Yeah. It could be worse. Yeah, for sure. So in my, uh, in my, my day job, I work as an assistant director for, for television shows. And so one of the things that I'm very aware of is like, learning to speak the languages of all the different departments. Like this department doesn't care about this, but they do care about this. And I'm curious, especially working as a production designer and working with a number of game masters and working with a number of different departments, what do you do when like people aren't speaking the same language, if that makes sense? Like have, have there been times when you're like, what you're imagining, what the GM is imagining or what you're imagining and what is realistic within the bounds of the production aren't jiving? how have you best like course corrected and found things that are that do kind of work together <laughs> a, a very poorly worded question but i think you get the gist i think i understand what you're saying yeah i mean that's hard because the because the rapport is like is is the uh is the lifeblood of collaboration yeah. and if you don't have it you're you know you're 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 not really doing anything you know you're you're you may be working hard but you're not creating anything that is of significance uh in my experience so I think you you just have to work at it until you find that that commonality, you know, and 
I mean, luckily that is sort of seems like what GMs do anyway when they run a game is that they're trying yeah. to find rapport with their players who may not all be the same play style or have the same social uh, ways of communicating. And so GMs tend to be pretty, pretty good at that. But I do find that so far, all the GMs I've worked with in, in this way that everybody brings different skills to the table, different sort of like tools in their creative toolbox. You know, like Matt Mercer is a is a very, you know, Matt does most of the miniatures and terrain for them. He thinks that way and comes with like very concrete battle concepts, you know, early on. And, you know, different GMs have different strengths or areas where they're just, that's not an area that they kind of creatively operate in. Uh, so. You know, my job is to sort of try to figure that out and sort of shore up or or try to fill the area that that we need to to get information on. You have to get that rapport and you have to find that common ground and trust. Uh, you know, otherwise, I think you're not necessarily making anything. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Has how you've come to that relationship changed over time? Like when you think back to seasons one through three and and how you approach the relationship with the GM versus how you sort of approach it now? Well, you know, I started out just as the production designer of of a show called Fantasy High. It was before it was Dimension 20. And at that point, you know, it was like, we would like you to build a, a like fantasy high school classroom where we're going to shoot this show in. And then it sort of evolved. But I you know, be, being there in a similar way in a time when Dropout was was uh, had some money to invest in shows and they were spinning up a whole bunch of shows at once. So there was kind of a bit of a vacuum as far as like, I think, ability to to give everything to a single show, especially a show like an actual play show, which really is a massive amount of both content and creative choices and, and uh, world building, all these sort of things. So there was a lot of like, uh, well, what about this? What if we did miniatures? What if we did this? Or like, hey, let me show you all this thing I just found. And, and it, you know, it's, it would cost $5,000 more, but it's really cool if we put LEDs on the set and they're like, yes, or whatever, you know, let's do that. You know, so it was very collaborative. And then also realizing that like, okay, we're going to build these battle maps, but like, and Brennan knows that the first, knows a lot about the first battle and and elements of these other battles, but there's a lot that is not figured out. So I'm going to start suggesting stuff or asking questions and try to, to get answers, you know, and because it's, it's just a huge amount to like magically just sort of know in your head, especially at the, at the top of a season that doesn't exist, you know, right. that maybe the player characters haven't even been created for yet. And so I kind of like occupied that space both because I think I, uh, I com- I'm comfortable there, you know, like I, I have a writing and directing background and I DM and so I n- kind of know a bit about the, the the needed elements, you know, and then I have that art department side. So I sort of stepped into the gap there and, and then uh, eventually it was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm kind of doing more than a regular production designer would be doing on a show. You know, I feel like maybe I'm sort of like, you know, helping create this arc and whatever. Uh, and so I, I got the creative producer title and then and now I've just been here long enough that I'm sort of like a <laughs> fixture, you know, that uh, like one of the few people from the beginning. And so I just, you know, know a lot about how we make the show or whatever. So so I'm, I'm a co-EP now, too. But. There is also something to be said that there are, regardless of medium, there are very few people behind the camera who are as well known by name as the players in front of the camera. Like <laughs> if you if I asked anyone to name people from Dimension 20, they'd come up with the Game Masters, a couple of players, and they'd be like, oh yeah, Rick Perry, of course. 
which I'm sure has got to be a bit of a head trip for you. It's wild. I, I mean, it, of course, it feels great to to get called out. And, uh, you know, as a creative person, it's awesome to, I mean, it really means a lot that that people know what we make and appreciate it and come find us on Twitter and tell us how awesome it was or whatever, you know, and it's really awesome to be called out by the players and the GM. And I, and I love hearing our crew now more and more of our crew are getting kind of called by name, which I think is awesome, but yeah, it's wild. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's surprising and awesome. So (laughs) So it sounds like you had this sort of very natural growth and filling in of a position from like production designer to production designer and creative producer and co-EP. Have you had an opportunity to watch other people within like your team who've grown and like shown like shown their abilities to grow into positions that maybe they didn't know at first, like over the course of now 20 seasons? Do you have any like great stories of of, uh, somebody who who you would shout out who's had a journey like that? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've had the great fortune of uh, working with a, a, a few, I mean, everybody that we try to bring on the team, I think is incredibly talented, but a few people stand out that uh, it's just clear the journey that they took and um, the growth, you know, uh, over time. I'm thinking of the, the few, the couple that jumped to my mind, which I know there's more than this, are like Shane Brockway, who's our senior or lead, uh, depending on the season, Minis Painter you know, who uh, was on the very first season in my garage, painting miniatures. And it's just, we all kind of, the the people that care about the show uh, and enjoy making it and enjoy collaborating like this, even just within our art team, I think we thrive, you know, because it's a, it's a really fun show to work on. It's really unique. It's awesome to get recognized and that there's an audience for the show. And so that is like nitroglycerin for creative people. You know, it just, it, it just gives us juice. And like, you know, we are so excited when these, when these episodes come out and everybody gets uh, blown away by the stuff. No, but like, yeah, a bunch of people, like, I think it was not even two years ago, Raven Bartlett came to my shop here as a, as a model maker, a, a first time kind of model maker, although they had experience uh, working in theater and doing those type of models and stuff. But, you know, Raven was great. And, and Raven then went on to art direct uh, a number of seasons. Yeah. Casey uh, McGeorge, who started as a, a remote art director on a small kind of remote season uh, now has probably art directed more seasons of dimension 20 than ever. And is production designing things for dropout and, and other things out there. So, I mean, I can't take credit for, for those people's skill and stuff, but um, it's really fun to, help create a space where there are opportunities uh for people to thrive and right. uh and and help us make cool shit and man they make me look good you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of like great collaboration is like you know when you're able to give people that room i feel like you know whether whether they're yeah. working quote unquote under you or alongside you like giving them the opportunities and space to to grow in that way feels like a a great piece of that totally it is also like a sign of a successful collaboration or like a successful partnership within a team of like, I'm excited to make my like boss look good and they're excited to make me look good. It's just like a very simpatico thing. It's great. Totally. Yeah. You, it's like you need space to operate. You need opportunities. You need you need those little vacuums where you can do your solo or whatever it is. And hopefully you by then you know enough about what the song is or all playing or whatever so that it it all fits together perfectly you know 
Yeah, 100%. Hey there, it's Elliot from the Many Sided Media team. In addition to playing and producing here on My First Dungeon, I'm also a game designer known for such games as Something is Wrong with the Chickens, a rules-like game of chickens, eldritch horror, and revenge. Project Echo, a solo time travel game played in the pages of a planner. And the upcoming Rom-Com Drama Bomb, a three-player game of meet-cutes and mayhem. If you like weird and unique games and want to bring something new to your table, head to moreblueberries.shop and use code MYFIRSTDUNGEON for 20% off your order. That's M-O-R-E-B-L-U-E-B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot shop. Thanks! I did want to circle back just a little bit to something you'd said earlier of, and this is something that I have in mind when I'm like running a, a season, or when I'm running my own games, it amazes me that you guys have battle set number 10 ready to go before episode one. It, just because like, you know, we we just did a season of, we played Orbital Blues. It was supposed to be four episodes. It became six episodes. For you guys, that can't happen. For us, it's like, we can let it kind of slip a little bit. My, my, my I guess my question is, how much does battle set, you know, 10 change from episode one like are those actively being worked on during the show or do they stay pretty similar to what they were at the start of filming i would say largely things sort of stay what we what we work out at the beginning but they do change and because of scheduling we're not always completely done with with battle set 10 on episode one a lot of times we're maybe we're done with the first five or six or, or first half of the season's worth battle and so we're still building them out so so there's that sometimes we do you know we have been in situations where we've added an extra episode because like this just is going long you know and so we'll be we'll be in like a two hour and 45 minute long episode you know taking a bio break and brennan is talking to like uh, michael schaubach the director and me and carlos and being like hey you know this battle this episode i i'm i cannot finish it here we're gonna have to go a little longer or we need to push that battle back an episode mm-hmm. or whatever you know and so we will rapidly make these decisions like okay we move that to 107 and that means this goes to one and then we do this this okay great that's the plan you know so we do are able to pivot we've done things where we've swapped battle sets like oh we're, we were supposed to go to this battle but now we're going to go to battle this battle instead out of order and there are also times where after a or we're in the middle of an episode, Brennan will like slack me and be like, hey, we need um, 13 gray wizards or whatever it is right, like, right. tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, OK, I got you. you. But that's that's the thing. It's, it's very much like GMing, right? It's like you have you, you make this plan, but you like, you, you know, that allows you to to um just like in production work to to be ready for like 90 percent of the stuff and it allows you the bandwidth to take care of the 10 percent that's totally wild and that you're going to have to flex for you know so it's the uh the quote that i love that is uh plans are useless planning is essential exactly if, if you get the framework good enough you can adapt to anything if you structure it too much you're dead in the water yep i want to talk a little bit about like the the evolution of your production design work over time and within that sort of the experiments you've gotten to do and how they've paid off like i'm i'm thinking of things like you've gotten to play with scale you know with crown of candy and with never after you got to do some fun things with like playing with mixed scale you've gotten to do you know i know 
listeners and and viewers are probably have bones to pick with you about Burroughs End and what you've recently done there. (laughs) Um, And uh, and you've gotten to do digital. And I'm curious, sort of like as the shows evolved, what have been your favorite like craft things to experiment with? Are there kinds of things within the craft that you want to try out in the future or um, or things that haven't worked out or maybe haven't worked out because the genre is not there yet? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as kind of any creative person, a lot of your work, at least the way I think of it, is like you learn these like tricks or or um, solutions to creative problems. Like, oh, we we want to have rising water level, you know, and like, oh, we can use acrylic, you know. Well, once you once you figure that out, then then that becomes a new tool for your tool bag, a new mm. trick, and and you may not have that ex- encounter that exact same problem again especially because we're trying not to repeat ourselves where we can but like you have that experience and so you may encounter something similar and you're like well last time we did that so i can take that and change it a little bit and and now i have another tool for my tool bag and so you keep building up these you know it's the same with dms too you know i think when you run into situations like oh no uh this is not what i planned or whatever and you you figure it out and then now the next time you encounter a situation similar to that you have more tricks and that goes that's that goes to technical stuff too, like what adhesive works best. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's many things that we have learned over time about what kind of like trees we want to use because there you can put a mini on them. Or, I mean, it's sort of an endless amount of tiny little uh, tricks that are incredibly useful some sometimes, but also it's just like a huge amount of information that is like usually not all relevant <laughs> all the time, right. you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, specific examples, but like, yeah, just like, you know, if you're building a piece of terrain, you know, you need to think about, you know, some really basic ones that I bring into a battle map is like, if you're, if you're building terrain, you need to, that, that it's going to have miniatures move on it in a conventional way. You need to be thinking about where the miniatures are going to sit and how are they going to slide off? If they're going to slide off, then you need to be thinking about how you're going to stick them on there, or maybe it needs to be magnetized. So that's like trying to put myself in the player's seat or the, the GM's seat when it's running, thinking about if you have a battle a battle map, you know, that is, I think a battle map is kind of like set pieces, right? Like in mm. an action movie, you have that like, that like six minute epic fight, you know, and uh, it's going to have all these beats in it. And hopefully there's something dynamic that happens where the battle changes could happen a couple of times. A battle, usually a battle is about four rounds long, kind of, give or take, or sort of like that's maybe the max that with six players that it doesn't start to drag potentially, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's exceptions to all these rules, but that's sort of, those are jumping off points. If you have a a battle that has a, a strong sort of like puzzle conceit, like this is what's happening in this battle try to have more than one way to solve it you know don't just have like the button that they got to push over there or whatever have other possibilities Mm -hmm. and then when the game when the battle's running you you don't have to reveal all those just wait for the players to discover one and then be like yes that's the way that you you know bless that choice and then that becomes as if it feels so magical to them you know but it also prevents that situation where you're like just push the button you know like yeah i made that one button you (laughs) know legibility readability is really important a battle map teaches the players how to play it much like a board game just by looking at it you should be like okay this is the space these are the elements you know uh these are the things oh look you know there's that over there maybe i can interact with that maybe that has a purpose you know when you're making a miniature 
you're sort of like censoring what elements go into it because it's impossible to do every fiber of every tiny thing. So you're already making choices about what's visible and not visible. And when you do the battle map, you're also doing that, you know, don't include things that you think are maybe they're realistic, but they are a distraction much like there was a, there was a battle map in our, in the first season where there was a, uh, a vulture that was cool. And I put it on a battle map and, uh, and, you know, the players kept trying to talk to the vulture and burning their turns, <laughs> trying to unlock the mystery of the vulture. And eventually Brennan was like, the vulture flies away. And I'm sitting there going, oh, God, I should not have put that vulture on there, you know, because it didn't have a purpose, you know. So everything that you put in there, realize that it is talking to the players. You know, like your your battle map is this sort of like silent other ingredient, other player there that is that is improvising with them and interacting with them, you know? So mm. all that stuff is signaling things to them. It's also a fun added challenge, I have to imagine, for a production designer, because if you're building a set for, like, a normal show, there's no one there who is actively trying to, like, poke holes in it. Like, everyone's right. just, they, they accept the reality. <laughs> but when you have players, you know, like Emily Axford, who's just like, I'm going to try to fuck up all your shit as, as best as possible, and whatever is there, I'm going to use. It's like if your film set was an escape room. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, we try to make everything as like bulletproof and strong, just just from a technical side as possible. Because uh, you know, I, new model makers that come in, I'm like, okay, we need this many. Here's the drawing, whatever, and they make it, and then I I'm like, that is going to be too brittle, and they're like, no, no. But if you pick it up like this, I'm like, that is not how the person's going to pick it up. They're going to pick it up <laughs> in whatever is the most destructive way possible because. <laughs> Because they're busy doing their job, which is right. to make uh, awesome uh, performance. They're not thinking about the most delicate way to pick up that many. So, And we also have to think about things like um, height, the height of sets, right? Uh, it's a 360-degree set, which means that it's looked at from three cameras that are all shooting this uh, middle part of the table from different perspectives. So, you know, you can't put something like this because it will block the cast. So then if you're like, well, maybe I'll put it and I'm holding my hand up directly in front of my face. So maybe I'll put it to left of my face, but then you go look in the other camera angle and it's actually right in somebody else's face. You know, mm. So it, it creates this little puzzle of like where, of how to use the space. And all of our battle sets, we, we go back and shoot um, close-ups of them afterwards. Uh, Michael Schaubach, Kevin Stiller, our, our um, team goes back in and stages these well-lit with like haze and tracking shots, you know, these beautiful... Mm-hmm uh shots of the minis but in order to do that they need wild walls they need things to they need elements of the set to to come apart so that the camera can actually get in there so those are also things that we're thinking about when we're designing set is like that whole section needs to be magnetized and removable you know and just to i guess emphasize that last thing you were saying about the like eye lines and not blocking seven eye lines three at least three cameras that yeah, you're having it to was consider three cameras on the cast. And then there's usually a, if it's a battle, there's an overhead camera that started out just for reference of where, what's happening in the battle. But now it's also one they use. And then they have like a kind of a, a three quarter, not fully overhead, but higher mm, uh, yeah. angle too. So there's, I think there are five cameras now on a, on a battle season of D uh, 20. Can't hide much. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't hide much. On the subject of of sets and like you guys have done so much and you said you're trying not to repeat yourself, is there something that has not that you haven't been able to do yet? Is there like a fun trick in your tool bag that you're just like hoping to get out sometime in the future? 
Yeah, there's lots of things. I mean, I'm always, I love to, to find new things out there, new miniature vendors and new, uh, lots of stuff, but I, I don't want to tell you because uh, <laughs> you to still be might. Right. yeah, these are tricks that I haven't pulled yet. So I'll be honest, I would rather be surprised too, but I got to ask the question. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I respect that for sure. <laughs> Obviously Rick, we're like, we're huge fans of your work. And so I would be remiss to not ask if you were up for a sort of rapid fire, uh, cutesy fan questions that we that we that we have for you we're just gonna we're just gonna throw these at you and uh <laughs> you can give us give us the shortest answer possible it just like okay. feels feels like the the thing we gotta do but we're gonna also, call it the rapid fire cutesy shit round so i've, I've got to be very Let's clear elliot set this up as if they are fan questions the fans were me and elliot oh yeah they're, no. <laughs> fan fan questions as in the two of us i, yeah, okay. I hope that's clear um so i'm just gonna kind of move like what's uh what's a surprising trick you use all the time if super glue doesn't work, five minute epoxy works. Favorite set? Uh, favorite set is generally the last one I worked on. Mm, uh, yeah, I get it's, that. There's so, it's such a big job, and it's sort of like really intense. And then when they're when it's over, I'm on to the next thing. So, uh, favorite mini? Favorite mini? Um, there's some minis coming up in the um, Fantasy High Junior Year season. Actually, I take that back. There's a mini in Burroughs End that might be my favorite in mini that you will not see for a little while. Oh, okay. Love we'll, this. We'll love, the, love the tease answers. Favorite GM screen, which you sort of alluded to, is maybe one upcoming? Yeah, well, uh, th- we did one the first season. It hasn't been announced yet that I would say is the most poster-like of any season, for sure. But um, actually, I think, my, I think my new favorite GM, or maybe it's a tie between the Crown of Candy uh, GM screen and the Fantasy High Junior GM screen. And then uh, as a producer, in addition to your work as a uh, production designer, as producers ourselves, what's your favorite putting out a fire production war story? Like, because we've all got them. <sighs> well, some of the, some of those you probably can't tell. Oh, but, yeah. Uh... <laughs> the ones you can tell. <laughs> those are the best ones. <laughs> oh, man. We'll just put a long sensor beep for the next like, yeah, three exactly. minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I, this is not really a producer war story, but uh, so when I first started working in production, I was living in New York City and I worked at a scenery shop in uh, Spanish Harlem. And uh, this is more of a horror story. Okay. I, uh, so, so, you know, a slight gore uh, injury warning here. Um, I was working on some as a carpenter for these uh, backdrops for VH1 Total Request Live and I had to drill a bunch of repetitive holes in something. And we were, the working conditions were not great. We had been working too many hours and it was a Sunday and uh, my hand got stuck in the drill press and Ew. the end of my finger snapped off. Uh, oof. Yeah, but they put it back on and, and everything was okay. So, uh, but that was definitely well, a, a war story. Thank so. God for modern medicine. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. New piece of Rick Perry lore has a reattached <laughs> finger. <laughs> uh, I think kind of as we kind of move to a close, one of the things that I'd, I'd love to ask are, what are your main tenets as a designer? So like, what what do you think separates good from great? Or like, what are your core beliefs that you think go into every set and every bit of design that you put out into the world? For me, there has to be a great amount of truth in world building it has to resonate as real i want to feel i want to be able to have a sense for what it smells like there 
and what's, you know, the dirt under the fingernails. Like, I just, I want the world to make sense. Uh, and I think maybe that's just my way of getting fired up about it because th that allows me to find like the beauty or the aesthetically interesting things to, to feel, um, inspired to, uh, to create beautiful things. But, um, for me, it's like, I, I'm a big, I'm a big Wikipedia reader and, you know, research and just sort of like do my own world building is, is a big part of my design process. And the other thing I will say is I love to leave aspects of design open ended until the, the last possible moment. I, I like to, uh, it's part of the reason I like to be a production designer and also get to lead the shop because I want the, the thing we're making to stay alive and vital and, uh, and allow for any last moment inspiration as we're working with this material to be like, Oh, you know what, this should all be blue instead of red. It's going to look so much better or whatever. And, and do that. You know, I, I, I like to try to keep the process alive through the whole course of it. I love that. That's, That's great. great. I love, I, I wrote this down cause I really liked it. The dirt under the fingernails of world building is a great phrase. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you've, you've been working with, you know, dimension 20 for a while now, but you said you also are a, gamer player uh gm yourself i'm curious sort of what do you play for fun what do you play for inspiration and then maybe how has your time with d20 changed how you play games in your in your personal life hmm well i think i feel like i have less time to play games than i did before but that's probably not true um uh, I, I tend to like games that that are heavy on world building, whether whether that's a part of, that the players are doing or that they're just a really rich, like more rich world. I play in like a Dark Sun Fifth Edition game that I've been playing in a long time. I play in a in a uh, Dark Heresy um, Second Edition game, which is like the um, it's uh, the Warhammer Forty Thousand game where you're like a like an FBI agent or something, sort of going around finding corruption. What else? I like to um, I like to GM games that are sort of rich and in in world and that are kind of have a gritty sort of dark uh, like a lethality to them. Mm. I'm currently GMing, uh, which I'm actually finding the most joy in right now is um, my uh, our uh, our eight year old just uh, of their own accord uh, wanted to play games. So we've been I've been running a fifth edition. Um, just the Lost Minds of Fendelver, you know, where That's tweaked so it a little fun. bit, but uh, with the neighborhood kids around here, and uh, it's been a, it's been a blast. So start them young, yeah. <laughs> and then the last question we have, uh, this is the question we end every interview with: is what are you bringing to the table? So what is who is a person? What is a game? A show? A resource? Something? Anything that you're excited about, either within tabletop or outside of it, that you would want to recommend to anyone listening right now? Uh, you know, it's been a few weeks now, but I'm still kind of on a high from Big Bad Con. Um, that Very was nice. amazing. You know, I mean, it, it, I've been to a few different conventions and I've been to some small kind of like regional conventions like that. But I met so many people that were uh, a that were like mutuals, you know, from online whose whose work I respect, but also people that I just had did not know before and who were so incredibly talented. Like it was just so inspiring. Yeah, that whole that whole thing. And now I'm I've been talking with people since then uh, as well that that I met there. You know, continuing conversations. So, yeah, I think I feel like that that was a a big event for me. So, I love it. Heard nothing but great things about Big Bad Con and and sort of the connections people make there. Seems like seems like it has that real 
personal level that maybe a lot of conventions don't manage to to create yeah you know it it uh it didn't have it, i mean it had a like a floor with some uh merch and some like uh up and coming type of merch but or or small like indie vendor type of merch but it just is not about the floor at all it's really yeah. about it's about this kind of thing people just talking about stuff they're passionate about so yeah I sort of have an impromptu question that we might have to go back and stitch, but I think is uh, a valuable one for the listener, like for for a specific listener out there, maybe somebody is a, you know, interested in production design, interested in art department kind of work, maybe hasn't considered actual play as the world to go do that within. What would be your advice to somebody in that position who might be thinking about it or like what's what's exciting about it versus other kinds of production design. I guess that's two questions. Let's, let's go with the, what would be your advice to someone who is like, I want to be a production designer and like, maybe I want to get into this world of actual play. Like, yes. So more than one person has asked me, uh, how, how do I do production design for actual play or how do I do your job? And I, you know, I feel like I might be the only like full-time actual play production designer in the world currently, currently, you know, uh, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, that there aren't going to be more opportunities and there certainly are many opportunities. I mean, actual play is kind of the wild west, I think in a certain way, like we still haven't seen like, I mean, as big as critical role is as much, uh, you know, ground as we're gaining and some of these other shows, like there still isn't like the big, big, big show yet. You know, there's just so much, I feel like that hasn't happened, uh, that probably will at some point. Um, so I think there are opportunities. There's probably people, in your town that are making actual play that need desperately need your design help and would be happy to have you uh, work with them. And then, I don't know, as far as like getting into the, the film and TV industry, I feel like that's a whole other uh, hour long. Oh yeah. You don't uh, have to go there. <laughs> but, but, but you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I will just say that like, it's a, it's a really fun, exciting field, you know? And uh, a lot of p- people have basically like fine arts backgrounds and then go get in as like um, a carpenter or a painter or a set dresser and sort of learn the business because it is a very high context, like high jargon sort of mm-hmm. business. So you, you know, so you, you work in one of these kind of um, craftsperson roles often and, and then sort of on the side are doing your production designing student films or shorts or whatever. And at some point you just step up, step that way. Mm. Love it. Perfect. That's all we had. Uh, I'm going to move to an outro unless Rick, is there anything else you'd love to add in or anything else you'd want to add to this conversation? No, just that like, uh, this was a real joy and I, I've, I've listened to y'all's other, uh, episodes and I think y'all are making a great podcast and I'm really oh, thanks. honored to be on it, you know? So thank and, you so much. Truly means the world to us. Uh, so thank you very much. And honestly, we're super jazzed to have you on. We've, you know, my fiance's in the other room is extremely jealous that uh, we're getting to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rick Perry, for coming to the table. Uh, do you want to let people know where they can find you if you'd like to be found? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm um, on Instagram, uh, Richard H. Perry, and also on uh, Twitter at Richard H. Perry. And if you want more gamey content from us, check out the 20-sided newsletter and the many-sided media Discord. Those will both be linked down in the show notes. Please rate, review, and follow Talk of the Table wherever you get your podcasts. And that's what the table is talking about. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.
If you're looking for more great gaming content from everyone here at Many Sided Media, you should consider subscribing to the 20 Sided Newsletter. It's a free, bi-monthly newsletter for people who love games, make games, and just love making games. To subscribe, just go to 20sidednewsletter.substack.com or follow the link in the show notes.